This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a healthy and joyful life. Before we get to today's show, I'd like to tell you about this month's skedaddling report. What's a skedaddling report? It's a report that's available for a short time and then it skedaddles. It goes away and you can't get it anymore. I do that because I think it's really valuable stuff and a deadline is very motivating. So the deadline for this managing report is the end of February 2017. The report is called Sometimes Say Never, How to Defeat Binge Eating and Be at Peace with Food. And it's for you if you find yourself eating foods you want to avoid, buying foods that you've decided to stop eating, eating too much or too often or too fast, eating while doing a bunch of other things and not even realize you're eating. And the question is, if you know not to do that and you're motivated to behave differently, then what the heck is going on? That's what this report is about. And it's specifically about the question of when to say never, when to go nuclear on a food or a food group and say, I am not including this in my diet anymore, and when to treat it as a treat, to have it occasionally, situationally, and in moderation. It's a very important question and not all foods should have the same answer. So if you're interested in that, here's how you get it. Go to plantyourself.com slash never, click on the link that says click here to get the report, and you're good. You'll also get a complimentary subscription to the Big Change Bulldog, my to-the-point email newsletter. And I'll never spam you, and you can always raise your hand and say stop to cancel your subscription. And now on to today's show. When my guest Vanessa Sardi was a drug rep for one of the world's largest and most powerful pharmaceutical companies, she firmly believed that what she was doing was helping doctors to make better prescribing decisions and therefore was helping their patients live healthier and more comfortable lives. Vanessa went into the medical field with a strong resolve to help people, specifically with heart disease. So she armed herself with a master's in cardiovascular physiology, and she threw herself into cardio rehab and fell in love with the field, with her colleagues, and especially with her patients. When the clinic folded due to insurance reimbursement changes, Vanessa moved on to pharmaceutical sales. Now, she was also a longtime dancer and member of the New Orleans Saints cheerleading squad, the Saintsations. So she had the, shall we say, pharma looks to go along with her deep expertise in biology and medicine. And as she learned the art of the sale, she quickly rose to become the second most successful U.S. rep in the entire company. Everything was looking great. And then she made a huge mistake. She watched Forks Over Knives, and everything changed. She just couldn't keep on going the way she had been going. The scales fell away from her eyes, and she suddenly saw the truth behind the pharma marketing machine. Drugs treated symptoms, they didn't cure diseases, doctors managed illnesses, and didn't really know how to make people better. And given what she now knew, Vanessa couldn't keep going on, despite the lucrative career that she had built for herself. So she quit the industry, reschooled herself as a transformational health coach, graduated from Wellness Forum Health and E. Cornell's program in plant-based nutrition, yay T. Colin Campbell, and reinvented herself all the while staying true to her initial passion for heart health. So it's a very inspiring story. It's a, a profile in courage, and I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, Vanessa Sardi, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I'm excited to be on. So let's let's start with 
with your story, which is su such an excellent journey. And um, maybe let's like let's begin with just where you started from in terms of your relationship to health and eating, and like how important was that? How aware were you of all that stuff when you were young? Well, when I was young, I had the worst relationship with food that you can possibly imagine. Uh, as a former anorexic and bulimic, you can imagine that food was my enemy and so was hunger. And I did anything I could to repress that hunger. Hmm. So when, when did that start? That started towards the tail end of high school and went all through college, all through graduate school, tapered off a little bit and then came back with a vengeance when the big Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans in 2005. Uh huh. And so, what what was what was that like um, growing up with that? Did people know? Or were you really good at keeping it to yourself? Uh, people people knew. Um, they started to figure it out because you know I I lost thirty five pounds and I wasn't really big to begin with. Um, it, it was sheer torture, to be honest with you. And I can remember I had this notebook, and I would it was just strictly calorie counting. I would add the calories I consumed and I would subtract the calories I burned at the gym and I did this at least a hundred times a day and I wouldn't go to bed until I was in the negative. Hmm. And at this at and at this point did you know that it wasn't a good idea was there some part of your brain going stop this like like OCD or did it feel like every part of your being was saying this is really important? And it's funny, my dad used to ask me the same thing. He's, you know, he's like, but you're so smart, and, and, and logically you have to know that this is so bad for you. And, and I did. I mean, my goodness, my degree was, was exercise and cardiovascular physiology with a minor in nutrition. So my logical mind knew better, but my logical mind wasn't in control at that time. Mm. So how, how bad did it get? Like, were you, you know, I've... I've seen stories of, uh, you know, especially anorexics um, who, you know, die. Like, we're, how, how close were you to, like, real mortal danger? Uh, I, I got close to it post-Katrina, uh, which is why I, I chose to admit myself into the hospital, because I, I realized just how close I came to death. And I said to myself, you know, i got to make a decision here. And that decision is, do I want to live or do I want to die? Do I, do I have purpose here on this earth to still fulfill? Or is it just time to throw the towel in because I'm so incredibly miserable? And so I ended up choosing life and went to the hospital for two months. Hmm. Oh, and your, your diet when you were growing up, I assume, was, not, was sort of a standard American diet or maybe a little bit worse because of where you're from? Yeah, growing up, it was absolutely the standard American diet. I drank dairy like it was going out of style. And I also, thinking back, knowing what I know now, I was plagued with earaches and, and constipation. And we used, my parents used to think, oh, she must be allergic to cheese and chocolate. And interestingly, looking back, it's like, well, no, it wasn't the cheese and the chocolate. It was the dairy. We just had no idea then. So it was the standard American diet all through high school, and then once I got to college, uh, at 17 years old, the, the anorexia began, and I ate as little as I possibly could. Uh -huh. 
did you have do you have a sense of like what triggered the anorexia you know was it you know thoughts or feelings or or like where where did that come from it 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 came from early childhood as as most issues and and addictions do in life you know, as kids, we our core beliefs about ourselves are developing, and um, I was physically, emotionally, mentally abused by my grandmother, uh, and she she raised me probably more than fifty percent of my life growing up because both of my parents were entrepreneurs, one by day and one by night. My mom was a dance school teacher, and so I, I think from an early age, it was I was taught that I wasn't good enough. Nothing I did was right. It didn't matter how hard I tried. It still wasn't going to please my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And so that that's my core was my core belief about myself. So what what turned it around for you? A lot of therapy <laughs> and and learning to radically accept things that weren't within my control. I think radical acceptance is probably the most important life lesson I have ever learned. Um, Unfortunately, I learned it through uh, an autoimmune disease that I got from the flu vaccine, which is Guillain-Barre syndrome, and I was paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, and, And that was the moment that I learned exactly what radical acceptance truly meant. Um, but lots of therapy, radically accept, radical acceptance, um, and, and certainly the hospital gave me a, a whole set of tools that I still use to this day. Mm. So it's a, it's a it sounds like it's an ongoing conversation with yourself about I am enough, I am I am fine. There's nothing there's nothing I need to prove. Yeah, it, it, the further and the the longer you're in recovery, the further away you get from those thoughts and it's now almost as though I am talking about someone else's life. You know, when I, when I talk about that part of my story, I really truly feel like I'm talking about someone else, but I will say this, you know, when you're, when you have an eating disorder, whether it's binge eating or anorexia or bulimia, whatever it is, you know, the, I was, I went 10 years in recovery and still I would hear fat thoughts, you know, which was, Oh, Vanessa, you're, you know, you're looking kind of chunky today. And, you know, oh, if you eat this pie, you're probably not going to be able to fit into your jeans tomorrow. And so those thoughts would still come, but I just learned how to not identify with them. Mm. Like, like, um, I, I saw, I read something recently about this idea of like neurological junk, just like, like blips that come up and you can say, oh, there's that thought. It's, it, it doesn't mean I have to listen to it. Exactly. I, I, I learned how to be the observer of my own mind. Uh, so I, the way I just usually describe it is, you know, I tell people, imagine you're sitting on a bench at the bus station and all of these buses are going by and they're all going to a bunch of different places. If you hop on every single one of those buses, you're going to end up all over the place, which is exactly what happens when we get caught up in our head mm-hmm. with the thoughts. But if you could practice just sitting on the bench and observing the buses and describing them, you know, there goes a yellow bus and there goes the red bus and not identifying with them, that's kind of how I look at my thoughts. Oh, I love that metaphor. That's beautiful. Thank you. So so you had your, your degree um, 
in exercise, cardiovascular physiology. What did you want to do with it? Like, what was when you decided to live? Like, what was, what were your what was your goals about you know being of service? Well, my grandfather, my mother's father, who I absolutely adored, and he he tried when my grandmother was abusive. He always tried to take up for me, but his heart was so weak. Um, that I would hide a lot of the abuse because I was afraid that he would endure another heart attack and not survive. But when I lost him in eighth grade, I made a vow that day that I would spend the rest of my life helping people with heart disease. And so when I pursued that degree, I was actually pre-med because I wanted to go to med school for cardiology. Uh, But then I did several internships in cardiopulmonary rehab. And fell in love with it because I got to interact with patients and build beautiful relationships with them and, and watch them get better right before my very eyes. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is what I want to do. Hmm. So how, how did you begin to pursue that? Uh, I, was, uh, I got my master's in uh, cardiovascular physiology. I actually was going to go on to get my PhD once I decided against med school, but then I got offered a position back in New Orleans to be the chief cardiopulmonary physiologist and program director at a, at a cardiac rehab. So I, I kind of jumped on top of that. Uh-huh. And r- roughly when was this? That was in, I got my master's in 1999. In May of 1999, and I started at the cardiac rehab in June of 1999. Gotcha. So, so part part of your story, a a really interesting part, of course, is you being a uh, a, a professional um, cheerleader at like the highest <sighs> levels that that there are. You were a, um, a it's pronounced Saint Station, I guess. That's great. You got it. So for for the New Orleans Saints. Um, which is, I, I take it, a big deal. Um, what, yeah, I, I thought so. <laughs> where did where did that come from? Had you always been, you know, active, athletic, a cheerleader? Like, was that like a a dream or just a, a job that opened up? I, I had I've been dancing my whole life. My mom was a Broadway dancer, and she danced up until the moment she went into labor with me, and then I was raised in her dancing school, and so it was just. It was something that I always did. It was one of my passions, and so I did it in high school. I did it in college, and so it just made sense when I got out of college to go for the NFL. Okay, so you know, I'm I'm curious whether the, you know, part of the eating disorder was related to you know, obviously to to be a sensation, you have to have a certain look that is you know a desirable look in our society. Was that kind of pressure related? To the eating disorder, like you know, people would say, "Wow, Vanessa, you're you're really good looking. You you know, you've got a, a cheerleader's body." Like, you know, to be sort of a professional, good looking person. I'm wondering if that ties in at all to uh, to the way your 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 eating disorder kind of developed and got worse. Well, I have an interesting answer for you for that because a, a lot of people would think, you know, oh, the, you know, the pressure certainly had something to do with it. But my anorexia started back in in high school as a senior. And so I would say that being a dancer and a cheerleader justified 
my anorexia. Huh. Does that make sense? It was a beard for it. Yeah, it was like, okay, you know, I, if I, I start to beat myself up, like, what am I doing? This is crazy. Well, you know, well, no, I have to do this because don't forget, you know, you've got to put on a little outfit and get out there in front of 95,000 people at the Superdome and you have to look good. And, and you don't want to get cut from a game because we had to audition for every single football game. It wasn't just to make the team. You had to audition for every game. So while that's very stressful, I think I, I used it to justify my self-sabotage. Mm. And I'm, I'm guessing that the com- maybe the conversations you had with the other sensations, maybe who didn't have eating disorders, were, were kind of the same sorts, you'd say the same sorts of things, right? Because there's, there's, uh, there's a language around, oh, I'm on a diet, I can't have this, I feel so fat, that it, that's kind of acceptable, in our society, right? Yes. Yes, yes. We, a lot of the girls, you know, they would starve themselves the week leading up to a game. And so, you know, it kind of, I felt like I fit right in. <laughs> so you, you were, from when to when were you a Saint Station? From 2000 to 2006. Gotcha. So, But I did, I did not complete uh, my year in 06 because... That's when I almost died. Uh huh. So even even while you were you were going through like the worst throes of your eating disorders, you were still donning the uniform on for for Sunday games. I, I was. I and I honestly, looking back, don't know how I made it through through college and then through the games. I, I really I don't know how I did it. I mean. It, yeah, I mean, just in terms of having like the energy and the stamina and the focus, it seems like it seems like it would take a lot out of you to just. You know, I mean, tell, what, what was it like? I mean, all right, just like this is you know this is like a podcast about health, but I'm really curious about you know <laughs> world that I see on the screen but have no um, no input or connection with until until now. Like, like how many hours of practice were there? What was what was it like? Uh, as being a sensation? Yeah. We, uh, I honestly, those were some of the the best years of my life while I had so much turmoil going on at the same time. So I say they were the best and the worst years of my life. But, you know, we practiced um, two nights a week for three hours. Um, and then we were expected to do a certain number of appearances uh, and community service. We were, you know, we did a lot of stuff. We supported a lot of charities, and uh, sometimes we would do autograph signings with with other football players. So it, it felt like another part time, sometimes full time job that I was doing while I was a pharmaceutical rep. Okay. Yeah. So, so when did you become a pharma rep? In two thousand four. Gotcha. So you you'd spent three. Your- Four, roughly four, four and a half years as this program director and director of care at the cardi- cardiac rehab center. So what, yes. what made you jump into pharma? Was it, uh, you know, we, we, I, I imagine like really noble desires and really sort of, you know, cynically think of just, well, it's the, it's the money or like what was going through your head to make that switch? <laughs> Actually, I wanted absolutely nothing to do with sales. And I proclaimed from the time I started college, 
uh, sales is not for me. I'll never be a salesman. So it's kind of crazy that I ended up being top in sales at my in pharma. But the uh, the cardiac rehab that I was working at the um, Medicare shifted its reimbursement policies, and so the physicians that own that clinic were being forced to shut it down because they were losing money. But prior to that, my patients would always say, you know, you're going to leave us. You have your master's degree. And, you know, they knew that I was rubbing pennies to make nickels there. I I didn't get paid very much. But that really didn't matter to me because I absolutely loved what I did. I loved those people. They were my family. And I I made a promise to them, and and that was that I'm never going to leave you guys. I'm going to be here as long as this clinic exists and as long as you guys keep coming and showing up for yourselves to get healthy, I'm not going anywhere. And I meant it. And so we had a meeting one day with, with the physicians and they said, you know, basically told us that the clinic's closing in three weeks. And I just remember feeling like the world was coming to an end because what were my patients going to do? Where were they going to go? Who was going to take care of them like I was? And then I realized about an hour later, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be out of a job. (laughs) (laughs) So as fate would have it or whatever you want to call it, that was at noon, that meeting, and at 4.30 p.m. that same day, the district manager for the pharmaceutical company I worked for called me for a phone interview. And I found out that one of the pharmaceutical reps that used to frequent the office um, where the clinic was, turned in my resume to the district manager because he kept trying to convince me to do pharmaceutical sales. And I'm like, no, I promised my patients I'm not leaving them and I'm not leaving them. And as luck would have it, the manager called that day and said, Hey, there's an opening. We want to do a phone interview. And that's how it happened. Mm. So did you, did you take the job thinking that this is a little bit of a logical progression in your desire to help people be well and get better? Yes, I, I did. I, I had to, I had to rationalize it in a way that okay, I'm still helping people. Um, it's just going to be indirectly. In other words, I, I won't be I have direct contact with the patients, but I'll be helping doctors make better decisions from a medication standpoint when treating their patients. Hmm. So um, you know, not spoiler alert. You don't do that anymore, and you're a, you're a pretty outspoken critic of the pharmaceutical industry. But before before we get to that, like, could you kind of talk a little bit about the best parts of of pharma and of your job and of your training from from your perspective? The best parts of being a pharmaceutical rep. Uh, it was a lot of money, more money than I had ever seen. I. I never thought I'd make that much money in my life. Um, uh, the and perks, uh, you know. Was, and the money was right base salary plus commission? That's correct. Every every quarter we'd get a bonus. Right. So, And, and you said you, earlier that you were like a top sales rep. Um, I was. So, I was good at what I did. Yeah. So, so you didn't necessarily know you were going to make that kind of money when you jumped in, right? Uh, well, they, I knew what the base salary was going to be, which was more than double what I was making at the clinic, just uh-huh. the base salary. <laughs> gotcha. So, I mean, automatically, that, uh, it became my dream job, quote-unquote, because I get to help people indirectly and I'm making a lot of money. 
Yeah. And I get a free car. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> All right. So what what else did you really like about it? What did you, you know, you know, thing, maybe things you learned or ways in which you were able to help people? I I were I was part of the, one of the most amazing teams of people. Uh we did bent over backwards for each other. And I think very few key districts you know, are like that. I hear a lot of stories about, you know, people arguing and this one's not doing their part and that was not, you know, we, I never had to work. I was on a team of people that were good. They were good hearted. They believed in what we were doing. They believed we were doing the right thing. And they were there to, we were there to support each other in any way possible. And it felt like a family. In fact, we call ourselves a family. And, and I honestly think that was probably one of my, the favorite parts about being a rep was, I just worked on such an incredible team of people and we were creative and we got to, back then we got to come up with our own uh, sales aids, if you will, you know, we got to, as, as opposed to today where you absolutely can't do that. But before, you know, you used to be able to take something and make it and, and use that as a sales aid or a sales piece to help the doctor understand the drug. So that was really fun too. I was able to be creative. Hmm. And were there times that you felt like you're really like making a positive difference? Absolutely. Absolutely. Every day or otherwise I couldn't have done it. So for, for, for example, like what, what sorts of things did you go home thinking, man, I really helped the world today? Um, things like, uh, I'll give you an example. I was in a sample closet one day stocking the, with, with the drugs that I was promoting and uh, a, a woman came out of the patient room and the physician said to her, oh, this is the rep for this drug. And she looked at me and she actually hugged me and she said, thank you so much. My blood sugar has never been under control and it's finally under control. And so it was moments like that that just kept me going. Uh-huh. So it sounds like you, you had this... Um experience in a hospital in, in you know a standard western medical hospital that for two months really helped you a lot with uh, with your eating disorder and all the stuff that came along with it you had a wonderful time working in cardiac rehab care and mm-hmm. for getting hugs from people at, at what point did western medicine start to seem like not the be all and end all because you were you were all in I was all in. Yes, I was. I defended those drugs. I defended those vaccines. So the cows came home. Um, And so what point did that change for me is what you're asking, I think? Yeah, I guess. And and you'd mentioned the, uh, you know, Guillain-Barre. So, you know, so I don't know if that was like the flu shot was the thing or. Yeah. So that's that's when the vaccines, that's when I. I still defended them. I just couldn't have them anymore because it could trigger the Guillain-Barre again. But uh, no, it was still, it wasn't at that point still because that happened in the very, the very first year I was a pharmaceutical rep is when that happened. Mm. And so uh, when I started to realize that what I was doing was actually a part of the problem and not the healthcare solution was when I watched a a documentary titled Forks Over Knives. (laughs) <laughs> what what even made you want to sit through that 
a friend of mine called me and said, I think you would really be interested in this documentary on Netflix. Why don't you check it out? So I, I did. And it, I literally went whole food plant-based overnight. A lot of people ease into it. Not Vanessa, no. It's all or nothing tomorrow. I'm a vegan. <laughs> and where, where were you living at this point? I was in New Orleans. Still in New Orleans, and you said, "All right, I'm going to go whole food plant based in New Orleans <laughs> with no experience." Yes. So, like, what did you eat the next morning? <laughs> I ate some oatmeal because I knew that was okay, um, and and it was a re- it was a struggle for me because you know instead of educating myself first and then easing into it, it was just okay tomorrow this is it. But then I had no idea what to eat. You know, I just, I knew I wouldn't eat meat or dairy, but, you know, what else does that leave? I was, you know, like everybody else. I'm like, does that mean I have to eat grass now? <laughs> <laughs> so what, what what year was this? Uh, this was uh, 20, this was in 2014. Uh, so you, yep. so you've spent, you'd spent a, over a decade as like a, a champion farmer rep. <laughs> right? I mean, like, how good were you? Um, I, my, I finished number two in the United States of America in, during the end of my career. Yeah. For, for your company. Number two. Good for the company, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. and, and this is like one of the large companies that everybody's heard of. Yes, this is one of the the big giants in in the industry. Yes. So, at the, um, at that you watched Forks Over Knives. You had this this uh, instantaneous conversion. Had you mm-hmm. been had you been sort of souring on pharmaceuticals and your role before then, or all of a sudden did you did you look at it with a different lens? Um, I looked at it through a different lens because. I, in my last couple of years in the medical industry, I was, I left pharma in 2013 um, because I got, I honestly got tired of, of fighting the managed care battle, right, with insurance companies. And, and so for two years, I was in medical diagnostic sales, um, but I was exposed to things like patients getting tests that they absolutely did not need simply because the physician was bored. And what? it drove me crazy. But yes, yes. I, that is actually a real experience. I, um, there was a, a patient, a, a female patient. She was elderly, and I had met her and, and told her about the blood test that we were going to do on her. And um, long story short, she, we were debating whether she had to go to the cath lab to have an angiogram or not. And when I talked to her in the, in the patient room and the door was closed, her fear, Howard, her fear was tangible. She was petrified to go to the cath lab. And I remember that night I prayed my butt off that her blood test would come back to say that she didn't have to go to the cath lab. And guess what? it came back and it said she didn't need to go to the cath lab. So I rushed 
to that cardiologist's office because I knew she would be coming back that, that day to get her results. And um, so the cardiologist goes in there to tell her, and I'm waiting at the nurse's station, and, you know, I'm like a kid, and I, can't, I just can't wait for it to see her come out with this big smile on her face and, and this huge sense of relief, and that didn't happen. What happened was the cardiologist came out, and he looked at me, and he said, you know what, Vanessa, I'm going to take her to the cath lab anyway. And I said, you're going to, you're going to do what? He said, yeah, I'm going to take her to the cath lab anyway. I said, why would you do that? And he said, you know, seeing patients in clinic is, is boring. I can't stand it. He said, I'd much rather be in procedure and in the cath lab. That's where all the excitement happens. And so I stopped for a minute after I picked my jaw up off the ground and I looked him right in the eye and I said, so let me make sure I understand this correctly from you. What you're telling me is that you're going to take an elderly woman to have an invasive procedure that has a 1% mortality rate, not to mention the side effects, all because you're bored? And he threw his hands up and he said, yeah, why not? I resigned a week later. So you might be tempted just to say, well, that's totally anomalous. And I, you know, I hope it is. I hope most doctors have better reasons than that. But it, it sounds like when you look back that there was a whole bunch of things that you later saw were, were off, were wrong with the way the pharmaceutical industry was, was going about business. Um, and you're in a unique position since you, you were sort of behind the curtain. Can you talk about some of those? Some of the experiences as a, as a pharma rep? Yeah, like what you, what you saw that, you know, if, if patients knew what was really going on, sort of like, you know, a little expose on like what gets prescribed, why does it get prescribed, how do you convince doctors? Oh, you know, because at the end yeah. of the day, as you say, you're you're a sales rep, and yes. you know you came into it with the, with this noble idea of I'm going to help people make better decisions. You know, is that how it always panned out? Oh my gosh, you know, it, it's wild. You know, we I can remember uh, we would get data on physicians, so we would know their prescribing habits, um, and so before I walked into any office. I would open up my laptop computer and I would look at everything that physician had been prescribing. I could look at it on a rolling six weeks. I could look at it a rolling 12 weeks. Um, I could see how much of my competitor he was prescribing. I could also see the insurance plans, uh, like what percentage of his demographic was Blue Cross Blue Shield and what percentage was Humana and so on and so forth. And from all of that, I could build a, a, a story around why he's doing what he's doing and what exact piece of data I need to show him and what exact page in my glossy sales aid he needed to see. And so I went in with a purpose, an objective, and a specific message based on the research I just did in my car. <laughs> hmm. And, I mean, you know, I'm listening to that. And, you know, I've had a 15-year career in, in marketing, and that all sounds like totally obvious and logical that you, you know, you right. figure out who your target demographic is, what are the beliefs that are keeping them doing what they're doing, and where's the leverage 
to get them to try something new. Where, where does that go wrong? What's, what's the problem with that in a pharmaceutical setting? Uh, I think, you know, there are, there are things going on like, uh, you know, physicians getting paid to be speakers. And, you know, and I, at the time I thought that was great too, right? Because who better to educate the, the, their peers than the, another physician himself? But was that influencing how he was prescribing? You know, if he's getting thousands of dollars from my company that makes diabetes drug A, well, where's diabetes drug B is the better choice for a certain patient, but he doesn't write it because this company is paying him to speak for drug A. Mm -hmm. And so you have to wonder, you know, how much of that goes on. So you, you were never tasked with, with really helping the doctor make the best decision in terms of like, you might know that your competitor's drug is the better one for, for a subset of the population. But would like, would you, would you say that or was that kind of forbidden? I, and, and I'm being a hundred percent honest with you just because I don't know any other way to be. I honest to God, if I felt like the competitor product was better for the patient because maybe they were on other drugs that would have, you know, they would have a drug to drug interaction with mine or, you know, whatever reason I had no problem telling the physician that because, and, and I felt like it, it, I built more credibility and more trust that way. And I wanted my physicians to try, I wanted my customers to trust me. Um, otherwise I wouldn't be good at what I did. And so part of, of doing that was educating them on, uh, you know, this is, this probably wouldn't be the best patient for my drug A, but drug B w- might be better. Or, you know, if my drug was very, ex- was expensive, it was a tier three, uh, then, you know, hey, so be it, right? Go if, if all they can afford is the other one, then it's better for them to be on that than to be on nothing at all. But the thing is, is now that I look back, while that's all great and dandy, the answer wasn't pills ever. It never was pills. It was never more diabetes meds. It was never more heart disease meds. The answer was always at the supermarket, at the farmer's market. That was the answer. Mm. So, So that's really what... What ultimately flipped the switch when you saw forks over knives? It wasn't that the pharmaceutical industry itself was 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 somehow corrupt or evil within it within the system, but it just it 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 was it wasn't the right solution when you looked at it from a from a wider lens. That was that's I would say that's accurate. Yes, it wasn't the right solution. However. Now that I am this far removed from it, looking back, I am now looking through much clearer glasses, and I am realizing just how corrupt it was. Well, um, Dish, <laughs> what, what, what can you tell us? Like, what, what, did you, what, what do you see in hindsight that, you know, that people who want to take control of their own health should know? Um. I, you know, I can remember in sh- when I went through in-house training, um, all all of the reps, it, we flew to headquarters and we were told we couldn't leave for four weeks. And we were, this is where what I call the brainwashing process. This is where we all got brainwashed. Uh, and we left there with scripts in our head. 
I mean, verbatim scripts that we were to go out like little army ants, and and that was the message we were supposed to give to physicians. We were also equipped with, okay, you're going to have a ju- objection A, B, C, and D. These are the objections that the physician is going to give you, and they nailed every one of them. And this is exactly how you address that objection. And it wasn't always in the best interest of the patient. I didn't realize that then, but... I do now, looking back, because I thought, oh, I'm, you know, my drug is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Mm. And, and, you know, we would go to these regional meetings where, the, you know, the whole region would come together and just be a few days of uh, sharpening up product knowledge and, and our selling skills, making sure that we're going out there with the right message and giving it to the right people. But at the very end of that, I'll never forget this because it was, it was very heartwarming and I cried every time. But they would bring four, five people up on stage and, you know, this person would be on drug A, this one drug B, C, and D, all the drugs that us, we were promoting in the audience. And they got up on the stage and they gave their testimony. And when I tell you, you talk about pull at your heartstrings, you know, that this guy was able to walk his daughter down the aisle because he was taking drug C and, you know, this mom was, was able to witness her grandchild being born because she was on drug A. And by the time you left there, you, you were like, I am going to go sell the crap out of my drug mm. to everybody because I want everybody to feel that good. Mm. But I wonder sometimes, were they really patients taking those meds or were they just paid by the company to tell us that? I don't know. I, I don't think I'll ever know the answer to that. So you have reason to suspect that some of them might have been actors? Yeah, I do. Uh, can, can you say why or like what, what's behind that, that, that the suspicion? Because pharma knew they were brilliant in, in, in knowing exactly what they needed to do to get us to go out there and tell their message. Because, you know, you have to be – have a level of unconsciousness, I say, when you're a rep, because if you wake up to the reality that is, then you, you realize that what you're doing is not the right thing to be doing, and that, you know, we're, we're paying doctors to speak for us, but it's not because, you know, we want to educate other physicians on the best way, it's because we're trying to sell more product. Uh-huh. So you, know, and, so you could plausibly mm-hmm. make the case that, you know, Lipitor is, is, is better than, uh, than some other statin, but you can't really make the case that, that any of them are better than broccoli. Exactly. Right, it's not even- and, you know, that's another thing. You bring up a good point. When you said Lipitor, I just had to – the statin drugs, that's another thing pharmacy, pharma, uh, the pharmaceutical industry would do. The data – they could distort the data in any which way they please, which then they misled the physician. So an example would be, okay, you know, and I didn't, I didn't sell any statin medication, but, you know, the reps would go in and they'd tell a doctor, hey, look, we reduce a patient's risk of having a heart attack and a fatal heart attack at that by 33%. That sounds, sounds great, right? But in actuality, it was a twist of statistics. It wasn't 33% re- reduction. It was only a 1.2% reduction. But they report results in relative terms versus absolute terms. 
And all that means is, in relative terms, they can overinflate the number and make it look like the drug is performing a whole lot better than it really is. Because if they would have really reported a one point, hey, we're going to give you this drug that's going to make your liver toxic and have all these other side effects and give you myalgia, the muscle pain, et cetera, and all for a 1.2% reduction of you dying from a heart attack. But that wasn't in our glossy sales aid. 33%, that was was our glossy sales aid. So it was very, very misleading to physicians. Okay, so but I might say, okay, so you're you're the sales rep. That's your job. You, uh, you know, you already had a medical background. I'm not sure what kind of medical training the, you know, the minimum medical training a sales rep needs, but the doctor has spent 10 years in school learning this stuff. You're telling me that, that they'd be snowed by, by relative risk um, on a glossy sheet and they, and they wouldn't realize that, that, that this isn't reality? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Unless they took the time to read all of the studies, which how many drugs are there out there? They don't have time. They simply don't have time in between seeing patients to get down to the nitty-gritty and read all of the data. Who does, you know, unless you're a pharma rep. But, you know, so, yeah, they, a lot of physicians that I've spoken to have said you know, we really rely on our reps for, for information about the products because there's no way we can keep up with all of them and, 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 and see patients at the same time. Right. Now, I mean, yeah, they they don't have time to look at all the, the studies, but there are, you know, physicians, organizations, and responsible um, doctors who, like, are trying to get some sort, some kind of reform going. But, like, the simplest thing you could do, like, I, I would tell all my clients, if, they, if they're going to go and the doctor's going to prescribe a drug, just ask them, what's the number needed to treat? Right. So for that, mm. for the in the case of the statin that has a one point two percent reduction, even you know your doctor would say, well, it will reduce your risk by thirty three percent, right? From like from two percent to one point, you know, from from three percent to point eight percent, right? So right. there's your one point two. But the, to to answer the question, what's the number needed to treat? Meaning, how many people have to take this drug for one person to benefit? The answer there is eighty three. Like, could, did, did doctors not realize, like, like, that's not hard. That's like third grade math. You know, I, again, I think that from my, if this is from my experience anyway, um, especially as we, healthcare started to change, they, uh, physicians were just slammed. And as, as Obamacare came in, it, they were more frustrated than ever and, I mean, they were just victims of the system, really. You know, they're being told that they're gonna, their pay is going to get cut, and, and then insurance companies are telling them, you have to prescribe X, Y, and Z in that order for this disease condition, and if not, we're going to ding you, and you're going to lose money. So it's just they, they became pawns of the system, kind of like we were of the pharmaceutical industry. Hmm. Sounds like everyone was subservient to shareholder value at this point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Because insurance companies, they have shareholders, too, that they have to please. Sure. So you saw Forks Over Knives. 
Um, you are you are now in medical diagnostic sales. You you quit after the board physician put this lady's life at risk for his titillation. Um, what mm-hmm. what did you do? Next, I mean, Forks Over Knives is a fantastic movie, but it's not really enough to, like, build a career on. No, no. So I became obsessed, literally, with learning as much as I could. I read Dr. Campbell's book, The China Study. I read Dr. Esselstyn's book, you know, Prevent Reverse Coronary Artery Disease, Dean Ornish's literature, McDougall's literature. I just could not get enough. I And then I took... Um, I took the Cornell course in plant-based medicine to get my plant-based certificate in nutrition. Uh, I went and took Pam Popper's Food Over Medicine course, which was absolutely fabulous. Both courses were fabulous. I, and I just I went to as many conferences, plant-based conferences. I spoke to Dean Ornish. I just I just got I submerged myself as much as I could uh, to learn to learn as much as I could. And the more I learned, the more I realized how how corrupt the system was. So it took, it took that for me to realize, you know, that I was part of the problem, not the solution, but I'm so grateful that I, I came to that conclusion, but that's, so I, that's what I did. I just, I got submerged in the research and in the data and because I'm a farmer rep or a former, former farmer rep, I'm a data junkie. I'm a science junkie. So, you know, I, I just was impressed. Everything I read was just mind blowing to me because any physician that I talked to anyway would say, you can't reverse coronary artery disease or you can't reverse diabetes. Once you have it, you have it. And physicians that I, that I called on, I can't speak to, uh, to all physicians, but the ones that I do, you know, they didn't believe that those things could be reversed. Right. And so once I learned that, that you could, it's like, holy moly, <laughs> All right, but you but you said just a minute ago that you coming from being a farmer rep were a data junkie, and so you were obsessed with learning. But now you go back and you present the data to the same to the to the people who are also presumably are data junkies. You know your friends from pharma, doctors, and they're not buying it. Like where where's the what where's the gap? Where's the disconnect? <laughs> where's where's the disconnect? If you guys are so trained to to look at data and the data is so out there and so obvious, like from your perspective, why are people so resistant to to seeing it? You know, some people would say that oh, you know, there's no money in 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 curing people, and you know, and that's that's absolutely the truth. Um, there's only money in disease care, you know, and, and, and but I, I was speaking to one of my physicians that I used to call on back in New Orleans over the holidays. And, and it was interesting because I was telling him, you know, he's an, he is uh, an endocrinologist. And I said, look, you, we can reverse your patient's diabetes. It's so easy to do, but it's like, he had no idea. And when I told him that I helped several people do this, he was in shock. Hmm. And so he said, you know, he's like, it's, he said, I think, Vanessa, that as physicians, we just get so, we get so busy and then we get so caught up in this, in the redundancy of what we do every day that we kind of just have this tunnel vision and we can't see anything outside of it. Hmm. 
he, and he sounds like Which was interesting. He sounds like someone who doesn't have a sort of an identity crisis around that. Like to be op- to be even to be open enough to say that. I, I imagine a lot of do- you know a lot of doctors like look. This is what I learned. Uh, I've, I'm the best. You know, I'm part of the best trained cohort of healers the world has ever seen. Don't you try to tell me something new? Right. Right. And so, so that, you know, that was, and then there was another, another physician that I, I reached out to over the holidays to a couple of them actually. And these are all physicians that I called on for years when I was in pharma. And I knew that I could reach out to them because they already knew me, they liked me and they trusted me from my previous career. And so I can go to them and, and say, look, this is stuff you need to know about. And and they were they were, were open to it. All of them were absolutely open to it. Uh, they wanted more data on it. They were willing to read the data. So, you know, I I I have to believe in my heart that physicians are well-meaning, good people. Does that a hundred percent of them? No, of course not. Nothing's a hundred percent. But there are a lot of good, well-meaning physicians out there that are just caught up in the whole disease mongering system. And it's almost like they need somebody that they know, like, and trust to come and shake them and say, wake up. There's a better way to treat your patients. It's almost like you've gone from being a pharma rep to a farmer's rep. Exactly. Like you, Farm over pharma. That's my slogan. <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, you know, it's like, I don't know. If, I don't know if you ever did the, you know, the donuts. Um, but, you know, many years ago, I was doing some sales training for, for pharma, you know, before I saw the light myself and you know there was like always bring treats you know bring the hoagies um like i want you know i wonder if you if you came in and like talked about fruits and vegetables like is there is there even is there even space in their in their schedules to see people who are not um official representatives of the pharmaceutical companies who come with with um with samples for their cabinets no, but you know, you know what I what I I have done and what I probably will go back to doing because I really want to partner with primary care physicians because in in a in the a certain healthcare model they want their their patients to be healthy because if they're in a an accountable care organization which is just a a healthcare model as you know but um, then and they're contracted with, with an insurance plan then they get a budget. And if at the end of the year, and I'm, I'm really simplifying this um, for purposes of the show, but at the end of the year, uh, let's say they came in $10 million un- under budget because their patients were healthy and they, were, they had chronic illnesses under control, and then $5 million of that would go to the hospital that they're affiliated with, and then $5 million of that would go back into the pockets of those physicians. So in that healthcare model, it would behoove the physicians to have someone that's, you know, that is educated in plant-based nutrition to help their patients reverse chronic diseases. And so I thought about how am I going to get in there? And I said, you know what? I am going to dress up like a rep because I probably look like one anyway. And I still got the same walk as a rep. (laughs) And, you know, I might even bring my my little cart on wheels if I have to and just go schedule a lunch. Have you started doing that? I did one, um, but 
I ha- it, it gets kind of expensive because you have to feed the whole entire office yeah. <laughs> when there's an office of 40. Yeah, that, that'll put a dent in your pocket really quick. <laughs> right. Don't you, but as a farmer rep, don't you try to like keep it under $10 a person so you don't have to report it? Uh, yeah, there was, there was ways to get around that as well. Uh. There were ways to get, yeah. So we were, towards the end of my career, we were not supposed to feed anybody in the office that was not a healthcare professional. So if you're not a nurse or an MA or a physician or a physician's assistant, we were not supposed to feed them. But how do you bring lunch into an office and say, okay, you guys are, you guys can eat the lunch, but you, you secretary and you office manager and you desk clerk, sorry, you can't eat. I mean, who's going to do that, right? Right, because the, the, the secretary and the desk clerk are the ones who are the gatekeepers, aren't they? Exactly. exactly. You didn't want to get on their bad side, for sure. <laughs> so we found ways around it if we had to, you know, if I had to get my partner to say, hey, will you say that you were at lunch today with me on the expense report so that there's another head to count for, you know, since that'll take the place of the secretary who, you know, can't eat. Things like that. Mm. We found ways. So, so, so let's talk business because, you know, one of, one of the themes is you can make a ton of money as a pharma rep. You can make a ton of money in pharmaceutical. You can make a ton of money as a doctor. But when you start going around peddling, you know, peas and beans and peaches and kale, like, <laughs> it's not this obvious, like, road to wealth or even, you know, a road to not sleeping in your car, as, as Pam Popper says all the time. <laughs> So, yes. so for, first of all, for the doctors, like I know a lot of doctors who've been sort of woken up by forks over knives, whether it was through a patient or through curiosity or through their own health crisis. And then the first thing they do is like, oh, shit, I got this practice that's totally antithetical to what I now believe, kind of like you at the very end of, of your you know, medical and pharma sales. You are able to kind of reinvent yourself. Doctors don't get to do that. And then they're like floundering around. Like, how do I make money if what I should be doing is teaching people about health rather than pushing pills? Right. And I'm wondering if you have any, you know, you have any thoughts about, like, that's, that seems to oh. be like a pretty big obstacle to getting doctors to, to come on board is providing them with models or, or, or pathways or forward to, to, to marry their hearts and their wallets. You know, it, 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 it would be very, very difficult for some professions, for some specialties. You know, when you, when you look at psychiatry, um, their sole purpose is medication management. So what happens when people change their diets and they're able to reduce their meds or come off of their psychotropic meds? Because we all, we, we know that proper nutrition can lead to uh, medication reduction for psychotropic meds. So, you know, what happens to that profession? I mean, it, it becomes null and void. And so that's, that's a really tough, that's a tough one. But, you know, there's a, there's a cardiologist here in Florida who is a plant-based cardiologist. So she would be a great person to ask that question to. But, you know, it, if we continue to, the healthcare system continues to move more towards uh, value-based care versus, you know, fee-for-service, right, mm. then I can see more physicians waking up to this new reality of, of, of 
what we know to be truth, right? But until that happens, you know, I can remember meeting with the CEO of, a, of one of the largest institutions in the South, and he, he, was, he understood the concept of reducing unnecessary uh, procedures. But there was the CEO over the hospital part, right? He was the CEO uh, over the accountable care organization. But he said, you know, I, I don't know how I'm going to implement this new test if it's going to mean reducing unnecessary procedures. Because go tell that to the CEO of the hospital. You tell him that you're going to be reducing the number of procedures they do. Well, that's direct revenue in their pocket. Right. And, then, and that's not going to go over well. But they were on a 50, I mean, excuse me, a 70% fee for service still. And so until that changes, until they stop making money, you know, on based on procedures and, and how many they do, that's going to be a really tough one to, to combat. But if the healthcare system can change and, and start rewarding positions for get, keeping people healthy and keeping them out of the hospital, which we're starting to see some more of that today, um, then, then that that aligns in, in to what your question was. Gotcha. So it, it seems like one of the big leverage points, at least in the short term, is going to be the market demand. With people, people being learning what we're talking about and saying, you know what, I don't think I should be on these statins. I don't think I should be getting all these procedures. And maybe I shouldn't be taking any psychotropic drugs at all. Exactly. Exactly right. It it. it, it it's going to have to be a, you know, Dr. Campbell says this and his son Nelson all the time, you know, it's going to be a, it's got to be a grassroots movement. It has to be enough people getting the right education to start demanding healthier options and demanding to help getting with titrating down their medication. And that's where it's going to have to start is with the people. So, so back to the, uh, to the money question, what do you do now? And how, you know, what, what's, uh, what's your business and how are you growing it and how are you thinking about it and where is it? Oh, so thank you for that question. You know, and it's funny because when you were talking about, you know, living in your car and not having much money, um, there, there is not a lot. I mean, you're right. There's not, it's very difficult to make a living preaching the good word and telling people to eat, you know, more whole grains, fruits, vegetables, and legumes, right? (laughs) So that's why I decided to um, go back to school and and get certified as as a health coach. Because then as a wellness practitioner, as a certified wellness practitioner, which is what I I am, um, there's so much more that I can do with people because it's never – it's never just one area of anybody's life that's negatively impacted. You know, if it's health, then it's also either relationship or it's career or it's finances, but it's never just one area. It's always at least two areas. And so as a wellness practitioner and a certified health coach, I can, I'm able to address those areas. And, and I learned, and, and this is where kind of, being sick, being anorexic and bulimic and going through addiction and and all of that really comes into play uh, in what I do now because I realize that there's so many people out there who have this core belief that they're not good enough or that they don't deserve good things. 
And so I, we can preach wellness until we're blue in the face and, and throw information and science and data at them until the cows come home. But if they don't believe that they deserve to feel good and to be healthy, they're never going to stick with it. They'll fall off the wagon is, is the common phrase, right? And so helping people to change their core beliefs so that their behaviors aren't self-sabotaging, but they're self-healing, that's where the beauty of, of, of health coaching comes in. Right. I've, and that's what really what I do. Mm-hmm. I've often thought about that. There's, there was a phrase that they used for, for cigarettes is, you know, suicide on the installment plan. And I've, oh, I've, I've come to see that, you know, that's how we use food and, and even medical care, right? Because if people, you know, if pe- people will say, yeah, I want to live, but, you know, the way you can tell the goal of the system is what the system is accomplishing. And I see, you know, I think right, I see an awful lot of people who really don't feel like they deserve nice things. So that's, uh, that's such a beautiful sort of leverage point to go in because once once you change that for people, then, you know, then people can get fed up about all sorts of things and start making positive change. Right, right. Because I find a lot of times, you know, the, oh, I just don't care about eating healthy and, you know, a lot of that, a lot of times is a smoke screen because they do care, but they just don't feel like they deserve it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not 100% of the people, but that's an awful lot of people. So what's, what's a tool or two that you use when, when you encounter someone like that? Like you've told them what to do. They watched work, Forks Over Knives. You feel like they have, they have the knowledge. They have the finances to go out and buy the food. They have the time and the skills. But they're still self-sabotaging, and you suspect it's this core not enough belief. What, what's, what's a thing you do? So it... it, it I refer to it as transformational coaching. And basically, you know, I, I'm not talking at them, but rather helping them come to, the, to different conclusions on their own, knowing what questions to ask them um, to uncover their whys underneath the why they do things. And then associating, helping them to associate, because human nature, we go towards what's pleasurable. We will always navigate to what's more pleasurable. And the, it's the non-nutritious foods that are, we associate with pleasure. And so it's also, you know, helping people to reassociate what, what's pleasurable to them so that it's not like this willpower, you know, oh, my God, I can't do that. And, you know, it's just they naturally start to navigate towards more healthful choices. Does that make sense? So you're saying more, more healthful choices that are pleasurable or discovering other sources of pleasure or both? Associating helpful, healthy, nutritious foods and lifestyle habits with pleasure. Gotcha. Slightly. So instead of <laughs> like you know, going through the fast, uh-huh. Right, like, like enjoying an apple. Right, right. But you know, it's, it's about emotion. It's it's about emotionally connecting. So you know how how do you feel when you go down this route? And let's sit in that for a moment. And how do you feel when you go down this route? Mm. And getting them to associate uh, over time 
the, the more helpful choices with, okay, that's what's more pleasurable for me now. Kind of, I think about neural pathways in the brain as, you know, like forests and you keep going down one path over and over and over and over again. Well, the path eventually clears out and there's no trees and there's no shrubs, you know, covering the path. And so that's the one we're going to choose every time. Why? It's easy, right? It's already, the way's already been laid out for us. But the other path, we don't ever use it. And so there's so many trees and shrubberies that, you know, you can't even see through it. And so it's really about helping people to, to stop going down the path of least resistance and just help them start trimming down some of the bushes and chopping down some of the trees so that other pathway becomes more desirable. And let the grass and the trees grow on the other one, which is the unhelpful route, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think one you know one way to do it it sounds like is is just to um, to zoom out even like two hours like this thing I'm eating right now, if I look in a two hour window is a total net negative, but in the moment that I'm going to put it in my mouth it's bliss right but two hours later exactly I'll be cramping and you know shitting liquid and all you know and, and having a horrible time, <laughs> but, and so you know so if you ask me at like you know I remember. <laughs> One of my college roommates, uh, the, as a sophomore, kind of like stumbled in at like two in the morning on a Saturday night, like you know, drunk as hell, looking miserable, look ready to retch on this on the doorstep, and like you know, I wasn't a very smart, sensitive coach at that point, and I said, "Is this really how you want to live?" And he's like, "Don't talk to me." <laughs> Already suffering enough, right? <laughs> like I don't need you on top of this. <laughs> but you know, getting you know, helping helping our clients to kind of to see the just that larger horizon. Like you know, this isn't about moralizing. This isn't about what you should be doing. This is simply like to be as happy as you can be. What's the way to go? And it's so easy to see when you're you know you're in the helicopter looking over the forest that this one path leads to, to joy and the other one leads to misery. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a, and it's a journey for them. It, it really, it is a journey, but it's such a beautiful, beautiful process to witness. And, and you know, the moment they come in and they say, Oh my gosh, I haven't had a Coke in three months. And they are so proud of themselves and they feel so accomplished and you can just witness their whole entire belief system about themselves completely shifting before your very eyes. And, and I get the goosebumps talking about it because there's just, there's just nothing quite as rewarding as to see somebody's total and complete health transformation. Yep. And in my, in my experience, it's almost like a switch flips. Like all of a sudden the person goes, oh, I get it. And and typically the thing they say when they say, oh, I get it, is I didn't realize how simple this was. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, you've been talking about it a lot, but like what you've been saying is like just eat good, move, get sleep, you know, find like just do stuff. And like, oh, my gosh, I've I've been making it so complicated. Like the, the epiphany moment is like, oh, this stuff is really easy. Yeah, I, I don't know at what point in time it it, 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 it it got the connotation. You Being healthy got such a negative connotation, right? Oh, that's going to be torturous and miserable, and I can't have this and I can't have that. And what I try to tell people is, is this isn't about 
what you can't have. This is about embracing all the wonderful and amazing things that you can have. And that's the way we're going to look at this. Beautiful. Yeah, I think, I'm thinking of like, you know, this like gorgeous produce section of the supermarket. Like that's, you know, that's what goes in the flyers, like these beautiful pictures of like raw fruits and vegetables. And yeah, there's a, a corn yeah. out there and most, most people never taste it because they're, they're crowding it out with junk. Yes, and, and, and we eat mindlessly, you know, it's, it's become food, it's just become, you know, we grab it on the go and we inhale it or, you know, while we're eating, we're thinking about a hundred other things uh, that we have to do and writing to-do lists and saying, did I get, I got to do homework with little Johnny after this and, and we don't really eat mindfully and so there's no awareness of food in our body and we we lose our cues of hunger and fullness and you know and so we just we just keep eating and, and getting people to slow down a little bit and, and try to connect and to be mindful um and i you know i told a client the other day i said you know we're in the early stages with her coaching program but i said if you choose to eat that non-nutritious product then I I want you to do it and do it consciously. Mm -hmm. And you can even say, you know, yes, I am eating this and I know, I realize as I am taking this bite that I'm not, I'm going to feel like crap later on, but I'm, you know, doing it anyway. Just be conscious. That's, that's the first step. Right. I remember the first time I slowly ate like a tater tot. <laughs> I was a school teacher and I would get free food at the cafeteria and I used to love tater tots. Like, they would just go down. Me too. And, right? Me too. <laughs> and then I, like, chewed it, like, mindfully, like a meditation. I'm like, oh, my God, this is the most disgusting thing I've ever put in my <laughs> This is, like, like... Isn't our, that our, fascinating? <laughs> yeah, our our bodies know. So so I want to I wanna, uh, kind of end by doubling back around. So you had... Um, this uh, this autoimmune uh, reaction to the flu vaccine. You had been anorexic and bulimic, um, and then you switched. Like one day, you switched to a plant based <laughs> diet, whole food plant based diet. Like, what has happened to you personally in terms of your own health and wellness since making that shift? You know, one of the most pronounced things that I that really blew my mind uh, was. I remember I, I alluded to earlier how, you know, when you're an addict or and you have eating disorder, uh, especially eating disorders, the thoughts, they don't ever go away. Now, they become less and less frequent and they, the volume starts to go down on them, but they never fully go away. However, when I switched to whole food plant-based living, I realized one day I said, oh my gosh, I haven't had a fat thought since I switched to this way of living. That was really mind-blowing to me. I can't back it with any scientific data because, quite I, I, frankly, I don't know if any data exists on that. But all I can tell you is from my experience, it seemed like when I started putting the right things in my body and living a more compassionate life in regards to our planet and to the animals, I, I didn't feel that I was separate anymore from the whole. I started to feel like I'm part of the whole. And eventually those fat thoughts, 
and judgment thoughts about myself started to melt away. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think you said you said two things that I find fascinating there. One one of them is, you know, putting the right things in your body. So I imagine that before that when you were quote dieting, you were restricting in some way. I was yeah, well, I was restricting and then when I when I you know, the, the binging of course, I put whatever in my mouth. Hmm. Right. But that it was it was a form of deprivation. Right. Yes. What at, at the moment for the most part, yes. Yeah, what, yeah. Um but also this idea of connections that we really don't talk about much in in terms of our our diets. We think of ourselves as as the, these individual organisms as opposed to you know, like a uh, an ecosystem, a biosphere of of connectedness. And it sounds it sounds like that was really significant for you to to feel connected to everything as a way to be okay. Yes, absolutely. That was probably that's probably the most pronounced thing that I that I noticed when I changed my lifestyle uh, and and saw, I stopped watching television. And I stopped exposing myself to commercials, and and I started eating, you know, a whole food, plant based lifestyle, and and it all everything just changed from a spiritual standpoint, from a mental, from a physical, everything. And yes, the connection to to the whole is just it's it, it adds it adds so much peace to one's life. Mm. That's beautiful. So so if folks. Want to know more? Can can do you do you do coaching like distance or just because uh, you're you're in the you're in Florida now? Yes, I live in Florida, but I have a, a lot of virtual clients, and so I, I definitely can do it virtually. And we could do Skype if they want to do it just over the phone. It's interesting. I find people feel a lot more comfortable sometimes telling me stuff on the over the phone versus if they were sitting in front of me so I, I do both i do you know whatever's best for the person and especially if they're out of, out of state i'm i'm more than happy to coach virtually absolutely great so how does someone get in touch with you and find out more uh they could um my website uh is nutriception.net uh, they can also find me on facebook Okay. And uh huh, at Farm Over Pharma, Facebook at uh, Farm Over Pharma. Love it. Okay. And they can also email me uh, at Vanessa at Nutriception dot net. Okay, and Nutriception is like N U T R I C E P T I O N dot net. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And I will include links to all that and probably some of the other stuff we talked about in the show notes. I wanted to talk to you because of a lot of reasons, you know, but I think one of the main ones is that listening to you, you know, even like I know all this stuff, right? I've written like a bunch of books and I've had my own health transformations and I've coached hundreds of people, but there's still something about the story that you can tell that lends like a, another layer of believability and credibility. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like you, the evidence you have is just so rock solid in terms of being on both sides, in terms of your own experiences. I think you just you you, you provide a really useful voice for our community 
for ordinary people who are like, well, why shouldn't I listen to my doctor? I like my doctor. I feel better on the drugs. Like you have an answer. You, you, you've been inside the system and you've come out and you can kind of explain its workings to the rest of us. And so I'm so grateful for, for your journey and, and for everything that you're sharing. Thank you, Howard. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. Well, so let's, let's get back to work and, uh, and, and help people uh, be well and save the world. <laughs> you bet. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the Big Change Program led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 196. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 195 archive episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not the Big Change Bulldog, you can sign up and also get that Sometimes Say Never report at plantyourself.com slash never. Today's show is brought to you by Intentionality. That is, living life on purpose rather than by default. It sounds easy, and it sounds like everybody does it, but in fact, most of us get hijacked by other people's agendas from the moment we wake up and check email and Facebook. One way to bring intentionality into your life is to ask the question at night before you go to bed, what's the one most important thing I can accomplish tomorrow? And then when you wake up, as soon as your other obligations are complete, get to work on that one thing. Thank you, Intentionality, for supporting the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks also to Plant Yourself podcast patrons Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Deep Breath, <gasps> Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Velkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis rhymes with circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, and Tom Franzak for your generous support of the podcast. Thanks also to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media and via email. You can write that review on iTunes, and you can become a patron by pledging a one-time amount or ongoing gift to the podcast over at plantyourself.com. In garden news, busy weekend, spent a couple hours creating a hoogle-kultur bed. Hoogle-kultur, love saying that word. I love saying it much more than I love doing it. Basically, Hugelkultur is German for forest agriculture, and it is based on the realization that when trees fall in the forest, they rot and they provide an excellent growth medium for new trees. So the idea is you take your dead branches, your logs, rotting wood, and you turn it into the bottom of a garden bed. And then you throw other stuff on top of that, uh, wood chips, uh, straw, and then your topsoil. And you so you can dig it into the ground. That's a little more work than I felt like doing. So I made mounds, Hugelkultur mounds. And some of the nice things about Hugelkultur mounds is that as the wood decomposes, it produces heat. So you can start your plants earlier in the spring because there's a resistance to, to frosting. Uh, obviously, as they decay, they release nutrients. And they also create a little bit of a hill so you can get 
a little bit of additional light and warmth from the sun as it uh, heats up that whole side. If you're interested in this part of healthy living and plant yourself, let me know. Drop a comment into the show notes, and I'd be happy to put together a video and some photos to show you all about Google Culture and how to do it in your own garden. In running news, had a good 11-mile run at 25 degrees Fahrenheit shirtless, which meant I got a lot of stares and comments. And if you're wondering why I do this, stay tuned for next week's show. It's an interview with Scott Carney, the author of What Doesn't Kill Us, How Freezing Water, Extreme Altitude, and Environmental Conditioning Will Renew Our Lost Evolutionary Strength. That's it for this week. So as always, be well, my friends.